available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to another edition of Outlook. Uh, and I'm Nigel Huen, and we've got a nice jam-packed program for you coming up this week. Uh, of course, we are going to go to one of our historical buildings, and this is the last of the series, and this is St. Mary's Guildhall, that's with Margaret. Now, many of you will remember from your childhood days the joys of comics, and we're going to find out more about the Beano, who is t- which is turning its 85th birthday this year. And another um, uh, almost fictional character, maybe or maybe not, Robin Hood. Uh, Elaine's been looking into him and why he stole from the rich and gave to the poor, and we still like him for it. Margaret is back again, of course, with more Dictionary Corner, words from uh, uh, from the uh, Susie Dent of uh, ITV's Countdown and how, how they originated and have changed over the years. And also we've got a story about some Italian convicts who decided to make a complete orchestra, would you believe, out of discarded migrant boats. Uh, and uh, Dave finally will end the programme with a visit to Sheffield, which is his roots where the family came from. But of course that's all uh, later on in the first part of the programme. Uh, we've got your, your sports report, reports from the centre here, and of course your post bag. But as ever, we're going to start with the week's local news from Elaine and myself. Outlook News. New, <clears throat> new figures show 403 foreign direct investment projects were attracted to the area, including 56 during the last year, securing nearly 3,200 new jobs. This month's Smart Region report, comprising findings from the Coventry and Warwickshire Growth Hub, Warwickshire County Council and Coventry City Council, focuses on inward investment. It found Coventry and Warwickshire was the best performing area of all 38 local enterprise partnership areas across England for the numbers of new jobs created through FDI investment per 100,000 working age people in 2022-23. Key sectors in the region included automotive and future mobility with 17 projects, digital creative and software with 13, and e-commerce and logistics with five projects. Investment came from countries including Australia, China, Germany, India, Japan, the US and Sweden. Earlier this year, Comtry and Warwickshire secured a top three position in the FDI European Cities and Regions of the Future 2023 rankings, which rank European cities and regions according to their economic, financial and business strengths. Craig Humphrey, the CEO of the Coventry and Warwickshire Growth Hub, said the figure highlights that the region continues to be an attractive proposition for investment. It is vital that we build on this good performance to continue our local and regional profile in seeking new investment. Coventry Cathedral is looking for stories and memorabilia to add to a new digital archive about the Second World War. The cathedral is collecting stories as part of a nationwide campaign. 
The campaign is organised by Their Finest Hour, a team based at the University of Oxford and funded by National Lottery Heritage Fund. It's aiming to collect and preserve everyday stories and objects from the Second World War. Items such as diaries, letters, photographs, memoirs, objects or stories about your family's experience in the war are all wanted for the archive. Anyone wanted to add, wanting to add a memory to the archive can take them to Coventry Cathedral's Digital Collection Day. A spokesperson for Coventry Cathedral said, Any from the extraordinary to the seemingly ordinary. We want our archive to reflect the diverse experiences of all those affected by the war, men and women across the British Empire and the Commonwealth who worked in industry, on the land or in other roles ran households and fought a daily battle of rationing, served in or supported the armed forces, and even those who refused to go to war for political or religious reasons. We are also interested in preserving children's experiences of the war and would like to hear about any relatives who refuse to talk about their wartime experience. The Digital Collection Day will take place on Sunday 9th of September uh, at the uh, Cathedral. Volunteers will be on hand to collect and archive the items from 11am to 3.30pm. The digital archive will be free to use online. However, the cathedral has asked specifically that people do not bring any loaded weapons or potentially dangerous objects to the digital collection day. A popular commentary museum is celebrating almost a decade of national recognition. The Coventry Music Museum has been handed a TripAdvisor 2023 Traveller's Choice Award for the ninth year in a row. The awards recognise the best things to do in the city and further afield. They are handed to those who consistently receive good traveller reviews on TripAdvisor over the last 12 months. And the winners are all in the top 10% of listings on TripAdvisor locally. Commentary Music Museum curator Pete Chambers, BEM, said, This is our ninth year of winning this award. I want to thank all our visitors, supporters, and of course our amazing volunteers. Despite not being a big museum, we are constantly number one in the things to do in Coventry, above 75 other attractions in the city, for nearly 10 years. We are one of the few to retain all our five stars after nearly a decade. John Boris, Chief Growth Officer at TripAdvisor, said, Earning a Traveller's Choice Award demonstrates that you have provided great experience to those who matter most, your guests. With changing expectations, continued labour shortages and rising costs, this is no easy feat and I am continually impressed with the hospitality industry's resilience and ability to adapt. Cheers to another successive year. The Coventry Music Museum is open Thursdays to Sundays. Entry costs £5 for adults and is free for children under the age of 15. For more information, contact by phone 07971 171 or visit www.carvmm.co.uk Plans to build 112 homes on Coventry 
College's old Henley campus have failed to get the green light after an appeal. The loss of green space and sports facilities would not be justified and go against policies a government inspector found. Coventry College, which closed the Henley campus in 2021, said the outcome has minimal impact on its ability to sell the land. The decision comes almost 11 months after city councillors voted to reject the college's plans for housing on the site. Reasons given at the time included the level of affordable homes, relation to the neighbouring farm and security of the sports fields. In their report last week, the inspector did find building houses on the site is acceptable in principle. They said the level of affordable housing would be enough, although this would be 14.2% of the total, not the 8.9% as originally put forward. The serious concerns of David Whitlock, who runs next door Henley, Henley Mill Farm, were noted, but the inspector found homes would be compatible with the farm. Mr Whitlock told councillors last year of problems with balls used for sporting activities hitting cow sheds and asked what could, what could be done to stop trespass from children into cattle. While there is clear evidence of unauthorised access to the farm through the site's boundary, the inspector said there's nothing to suggest future residents and cows couldn't be safely kept apart. College land use for sports is separate from the development site and can still be used for these activities without planning permission, they added. But the site also includes areas designated as local green space, including a games area, tennis courts and car parking, which would be built upon. Policies in Coventry's local plan say this kind of land can't be lost without a very serious, uh, very special circumstances, which the inspector found did not apply. They also could not know from plans that the sports facilities lost would be replaced with the same or better provision elsewhere, the report said. This would not be outweighed by any of the other parts of the scheme or its benefits, they concluded, and the appeal was dismissed. Those who, are <clears throat> those who are homeless and sleeping rough in the city are set to lose access to an essential hub of help. It comes after leading charity Crisis announced it is set to close its scheme in Coventry. Crisis works alongside people to find ways out of homelessness, providing practical support to help people find safe and affordable homes, as well as help people access healthcare services, benefits and employment opportunities. However, due to an increase in costs, high demands and reduced income, they are at risk of closure. Chief Executive Matt Downey said closing the centre was difficult to contemplate at a time when homelessness is on the rise. But he said he has to scale back services to ensure the charity remains financially sustainable. The charity's 11 Skylight Centres, including Coventry's base at James Brindley House near the Coventry Canal, is one of the two UK centres earmarked for closure, alongside Rotherham in December. The charity is also consulting with staff on the changes, with the possible possibility of redundancies on the table, with 19 in Coventry placed at risk. Coventry's Skylight Centre was one of the smallest sites, Crisis said. They have begun consulting with partners across the city and within Warwickshire, 
to ensure people who are affected by the plan closure receive help and support. According to gov.uk, 3,069 people were sleeping rough on a single night in England in autumn 2022, a 26% increase from 2021. Across Coventry and Warwickshire, the increase is much higher, with a rise of 106% since 2021. It comes as other charity organisations in the city also struggle to stay afloat. Clothing poverty charity Clothing Coventry is currently appealing for more funds to continue providing clothes for those who are struggling, including people who are homeless. They have 13 community clothes rails across Coventry for locals to help themselves to clothing items they need. Clothing Coventry said they helped 560 people with clothes, uniforms and shoes last month. We are currently accepting donations and particularly need men's clothes, school uniforms, shoes and trainers. The number of households in Coventry and Warwickshire facing no-fault evictions has risen to its highest level in five years. A total of 49 no-fault eviction notices were handed out in the region between April and June of this year, Ministry of Justice figures have shown. That's up from 44 in the first quarter of the year and is the highest it's been since the same period of 2018 when there were 70 no-fault eviction notices. The situation in this region reflects that of the country as a whole, where eviction notices are on the rise. A total of 7,760 no-fault eviction notices were handed out in England in the three months up to June. That's the highest number in eight years. The number of Section 1 mortgage repossessions to have been taking place over the last three months has increased massively compared to the same time last year. A total of 2,228 households were subject to no-fault evictions in England. That's down slightly from the first three months of the year. However, it represents a 41% rise on evictions between April and June last year. There were 10 such evictions in Coventry and Warwickshire in the three months to June 23. Crisis said, through our services we are seeing how many tenants are bearing the blunt of rising mortgage rates as landlords pass on increasing costs. The all too common and devastating consequences of this is that people on low incomes are left with nowhere to go and forced into homelessness. This cannot continue. In their 2019 manifesto, the government promised to abolish no-fault evictions, and yet, four years on, the situation for renters is no better. The Renters' Reform Bill must be prioritised in the autumn, along with crucial investment in housing benefit. Polly Neat, Chief Executive of Shelter, said, The Renters' Reform Bill will make renting more secure, and for those who live in fear of the bailiffs knocking on their door, these changes can't come soon enough. The moment Parliament resumes, the government must get rid of no-fault evictions, which have made the prospects of a stable home little more than a fantasy for England's 11 million private renters. The funeral of Coventry singer and entertainer Vince Hill took place last Monday, the 14th of August. The singer from Holbrooks sadly died at his family home in Henley-on-Thames late last month, aged 89. 
The funeral of the Edelweiss singer was held at Henley Town Hall, but people from the city were able to watch it as it was live-streamed. A screen was erected outside Henley's Town Hall, and a webcast link set up so that those who could not make it could still join in the celebration of his life. Vince wanted the service to be uplifting, and for all those attending to wear colourful clothes, a post on Vince Hill's official website said. Rather than bringing flowers, as the family have the blooms covered, Vince requested donations to be made to the Macular Society and Blind Veterans UK, which were the charities he supported. Legendary lyricist Sir Tim Rice and Pete Chambers, curator-director at Coventry Music Museum, were among those who paid tribute to Vince, who performed with the likes of Tony Christie and Scylla Black. A pupil at Hen Lane School, Vince became a singer after winning a talent contest age 15. He also worked as a baker, a truck driver and a miner, before finding success in show business. His debut single, The Rivers Run Dry, released by Piccadilly Records in 1962, led to TV and radio appearances, which brought him to the attention of bigger labels. He signed to EMI's Columbia label in 1965 and went on to produce a string of hits, including a cover version of Edelweiss from the 1959 Rodgers and Hammerstein classic musical The Sound of Music. It reached number two and stayed in the UK charts for 17 weeks. He told Desert Island Discs on 19, in 1975 the success of the song led to top billing at London's Palladium and the talk of the town. His career spanned an incredible six decades and he released 25 studio albums, recorded movie theme songs and performed internationally at venues including the Sydney Opera House. Although he had moved to Henley-on-Thames in Oxfordshire, it was said that he never forgot his roots in Coventry. We've always known it, that Coventry is now officially one of the UK's prettiest cities. The city came in the top ten of the country's most aesthetically pleasing places to live. That is according to research by Alan Boswell Landlord Insurance, which used Pinterest to find the best places each city had to offer and compare how many times each city had been pinned to give each one an aesthetic score out of ten. Coventry came 10th in the top 10 for the whole country. Coventry was just below Hull, which was ranked 9th. Top of the list was London, but nearby Birmingham was not far behind, but narrowly beaten to the second spot by Bristol. The, ten, the top 10 sees Coventry lining up alongside Sheffield, Edinburgh, Manchester, Glasgow and Plymouth. We are known for rising from the ashes and with regeneration work underway in the city. Who knows? The ranking next year could be even higher. Three allotment buildings in Coventry are set to be repaired after a £63,000 grant from Historic England was approved. The grant has been awarded to Coventry City Council for three original summer houses at Stony Road Allotments, located in Chilesmore Park, a Grade 2 listed registered park and garden. 
The allotments are only one of five on the National Heritage List for England, or located within the Midlands. However, they all have a risk of immediate loss due to deterioration and infrequent repairs. If they do survive, they offer great access to green space and provide well-being benefits. The money will be used to fund the renovation works to the summer houses on plots 9, 13 and 47. This is so that they can be used by the locals within the allotment community. The grant announcement has been made to coincide with National Allotments Week, which is this week. The Trust Regional Director, Louise Brennan, said the allotments are an important community resource, which has been part of many people's gardening lives for up to 90 years. The site has retained its wonderful hedged structure, which shows how it originally developed as detached gardens with mature fences rather than allotments with little or no boundaries, she said. The three allotment buildings are due to be restored are small and are constructed in various styles and materials, but all are built in a traditional way, with either timber frames or masonry. Each has individual details and standout features like pointed windows and moulded terracotta tiles. The distinctive features reflect how the allotment site was developed, not only to be a garden away from home for people living in urban areas, but also a place that people could have pride in. The council said the allotments are hidden gems and hope the funding will help keep them preserved for many years to come. Lower cost funeral services will be offered to Coventry residents under plans by the City Council. The council will open and run a new funeral directors at the old Coventry Communication Centre in Holbrooks after plans for a change of use got approval last week. It comes amid a national rise in the cost of dying, while in Coventry the number of public health funerals is also on the rise. The council-owned building is next to a cemetery and was deemed an adequate location for funeral services in a planning statement. As well as customer area, the new funeral directors will have a mortuary plus a new garage for hearses. Four or five staff are expected to be hired. Councillor Patricia Heatherton, a cabinet member for city services, said the council is close to opening the new service. She said, I'm really pleased that we are so close to opening a funeral service arm. Our team already takes fantastic care of the city's cemeteries and crematoria, and they will also provide a first-rate but lower-cost funeral service to local residents. The cost of living crisis means things are very tough for people, so if we can help in some small way and relieve some of the pressure on people, then that is what we should be doing. It comes after controversial plans to convert an office near Coventry Station into a funeral parlour were halted by the council due to rising costs. The scheme was opposed by people living in a retirement home overlooking the office. The council currently arranges public health funerals for people who don't have any next of kin or whose relatives cannot afford to pay for a service. This is required by law and can take the form of burials or cremations.
People are being hit by rising funeral costs, according to research published in the, at the start of the year. They found the average cost of dying in the UK was up 3.8% in, in 2022 from the previous year. Basic funeral costs were lower, at an average of £3,953, compared with £4,056 in 2021. But with professional fees and send-off costs on top, the overall costs come out at £9,200 last year, up from £8,864. Devastated family and friends have paid tribute to a popular Coventry shopkeeper and businessman who has died just weeks into his well-deserved retirement. Arthur Harrison, who was 73, was very well known on the DIY circuit, having run stores in his home city of Coventry and more recently in Kenilworth. He opened Arthur's food store in Stony Stanton Road way back in 1969, before relocating the business to Hexworthy Avenue in Steichel. But the likeable entrepreneur was perhaps best known in Kenilworth, where he ran hardware store Byright from 1991 until the end of April, when he closed the shop to move into retirement, as we reported a few weeks ago. Arthur's daughter Louise told Coventry Live, We are devastated. His health deteriorated quickly. He had pneumonia. He worked so hard all his life and had such a short retirement. Dozens of heartfelt tributes to the father of four, who passed away on the 4th of August, have been posted on the Kenilworth Vibes Facebook page. Marianne Dawn said, Such a wonderful man with a heart of gold. A real people person who cheered up everyone he met and always put a smile on our faces. God bless you, Arthur. If ever you needed anything, Arthur always had what you wanted, Sandy Bull said. He was an amazing man and will be missed. Speaking earlier this year, after Arthur confirmed he would be closing by right, Paul Townsend said his close friend was the last of a unique breed of retailer who was as customer-orientated as a businessman could be. Arthur is survived by his wife Sue, brothers Roy and Peter, sister Gwen, children Anita, Louise, David and Christopher, and granddaughter Grace. His funeral will be held in Cannon Hill Chapel at Canley Crematorium at 12.45pm on Monday, August the 21st. Police horses are being drafted in for Coventry City's first home game of the season to help West Midlands Police grapple with a hectic weekend of football. Thames Valley Police is loaning its colleagues in the West Midlands four police horses for Saturday's game against rivals Middleborough, a repeat of last season's playoff semi-final. The force said the use of horses will help it structure resources better as Birmingham City, West Bromwich, uh, West Bromwich Albion and Walsall are also playing at home on the Saturday. Football commander Superintendent Jack Hadley said, like every fan in the region, we're delighted to see football back following the summer break. The fixture list has given us a busy start with neighbours Albion, Blues, Coventry and Walsall all playing at home. We've not used horses to help football features for a long time and we're grateful to Coventry City for their support in bringing them in. 
I'm sure there will be a welcome addition and make a great photo opportunity for fans. If this approach, approach proves successful in supporting our poli po policing plans, they could become a mainstay in the future. A rugby woman decided to give her husband one last laugh by making him get the bus to his own funeral. When Simon Palladino died suddenly, aged 69, his wife Jackie decided her fun-loving husband's funeral would need to be one to remember. She decided that Simon would have to catch the bus to his own funeral and organised for his coffin to arrive at the crematorium in a double-decker bus. With the help of co-op funeral care, he was transported to the service in a London transport double-decker hearse. Simon always had a brilliant sense of humour, Jackie said. I knew that he would have wanted his funeral to be light-hearted and would have laughed at the thought of being taken to the service on a double-decker. It's far from traditional, and so I worried that it might not be possible. But our family and the team at Co-op Funeral Care helped to ensure everything came together, and the day was just wonderful. The bus was specially modified for funeral use, and was sourced by Jackie's daughter-in-law, Rita. Simon was a keen fisherman, and was placed in a picture coffin depicting lakeside imagery. He was then transported to the ceremony on the lower deck of the bus. Rugby funeral arranger Mike Wielden said, Choosing something a little different can also make the occasion more light-hearted, not as daunting, and help many through the grieving process. Simon's funeral did exactly that. It was a testament to his great sense of humour and gave everybody exactly what they needed, a good laugh. Outlook News So that uh, completes the local news for this week from Elaine and myself. Now, what have I got to tell you? Well, would you believe uh, the days are getting half half an hour shorter each week now? I would believe that, it. Either. It's that much. It's surprising, isn't it? Now, sunrise is going to be 5.51 and sunset is 8.30. Uh, I'll just to remind you also, um, Bands of the Park, there is one this coming weekend, the 20th, at North Mill Park with non-stop bop. Uh, and we've got any inf if you want any more information on the British Blind Sports, give us a shout. We can give you contact information on that one as well. So now we're going to move on to what's happening here in the centre. And here's Joe again. Hello, everybody. It's Joe again. Yes, Hugh is on his second week of holiday, and we hope he's having a lovely time. Um, it was 8:51 last week when I was in here. Sunset. And it's 8.31 this week. I know. Described. Mm. Yes, well, uh, and of course the sun rises is later too, so it's half an hour each day virtually. 20 minutes or yeah. 30 minutes a yeah. week, I know. Yeah. Nonetheless, it's been a sunny day today, so let's be grateful Beautiful. for that, shall yes. we? And I'm also going to say, because I have to really, I'm also grateful for the English women's football, Lions, yes. has just won the semi-final semi of the World Cup. 
So that may mean nothing to many of our With listeners. With a score three one. Three one. Yes. They've done very well. Having been booed by the Australians when they entered the stadium, uh, apparently this yeah, morning. Well, yes. My, my Australian niece and nephew were there amongst the. Four. Oh, were they? Yes, Good. They were. So anyway, they were thrilled. Yes. Split loyalties oh, in my family. Well, that's the problem. They live there, presumably, do they? <laughs> they do, yeah, so yeah. who do they support? Oh, they're Australian through and through. So oh, are they? Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't speak to them now. Oh, well, <laughs> I don't think I'll get to that. Hopefully. <laughs> Anyway, hello everybody, nice to speak to you again. Um, Not a lot for me to say, but I just wanted to update you. So, yes, Hugh is back next Monday, 21st. Uh, Rosie is back this week, so we've had her back with us, and she's had a nice week off. A couple of things of news. Um, The first one is I'd like to welcome a new driver to our volunteer workforce. Mm -hmm. Uh, Harry has joined us just today, well, yesterday I think was his first run on the minibus. So those of you that come in by minibus may well meet Harry over the next few weeks. He is um, around until September and then he's going away for a while, but he'll be in and out doing runs on the minibus. So everybody has a chance to get to know him. And we've got one or two other people potentially in the pipeline because we're looking for drivers, as you know. So that's really good news. So welcome, Um, welcome, Harry. Who was in reception today, please? Tony. Tony is our financial trustee. He's he's Uh the money man, isn't he? That's right. I thought he was. Yes, he's on the the board of trustees. He's very kindly offering to help today in reception. Carol's away. Training him on the till. Pardon? Carol away? Carol is not well at the moment. Oh, isn't she? Carol is not back for a little while. Oh, right. Um, So we're filling in where we can. Yeah. Yes, so the other things that I have to talk to you, there's not much actually. Obviously, we're still selling our raffle tickets. Um, we would really like to sell as many as we possibly can, so don't forget to buy yours or bring them home to your families. There are still some in the box in reception, and we'll be drawing that on, I think it's on Saturday the 9th of September. Um, the other thing that we have is um, the Coventry Lear at Lions. If you, most of you might remember it as the Walkathon that runs oh, yes. once a year. They've changed the name last year to be a bit more inclusive. So it's called Move for Fun now. That, reflecting the fact that it's not just people that can walk, anyone, pushchair, wheelchair, whatever it might be, whatever form of mode of mm-hmm. transport you might have, like mobility, uh, whatever mobility scooters, whatever it might be. Can I do it by car? Uh, no, no, that's probably not allowed. Okay. Um, push bikes might be allowed at a stretch, but anything you can, you know, ambulate, what's the phrase, anything you can move yourself physically, um, they would welcome. So it's dog friendly as well. So basically the way it works, I think, is you register. We're, we're hoping perhaps to have a team from here. So we would probably then register ourselves as a group. But people can register with their families or as individuals. You pay a small entry fee. And they do a great job, the Lions. They raise huge mm. amounts of money mm. over the course of a year for charities in Coventry. And the Learfrit Lions particularly have been very, very supportive of the Resource Centre for the Blind over many years. So they are hoping to pull a load of people in, have a lot of fun, and then distribute lots of lovely money across to charities. So that's Sunday the 10th of September, and it will be a 10, 10 o'clock for an 11 o'clock start. Right. So from Where do they register? Do they say how we register to enter? Yes, they do. They, you go online to do it. So you, there is a phone number as well. Um, but you go onto the, the web, leofricklions.org.uk. If anyone needs help registering or wants to join the group from here that will register, just uh, tell us in reception and we'll add you to our list or we'll give you a hand doing it. I presume, like other uh, 
the various sort of running things, they encourage uh, individuals who are participating to have their own bit of uh, charity, charitable raising money, getting people to do things as well. Don't well, I well, imagine... They don't say so, probably, They do don't they? say it on it's, their leaflets. It's always uh, a good opportunity, I, though, isn't it? Well, it, it is. I mean, I think, if, I think if you register them, they charge a small fee for that. Yes. So if anyone you know is interested in joining in, get them to register and contribute that way. Yeah. I'm imagining there'll be things happening on the day which will also bring in some money, mm. other stalls. And Did you say where it was? It's in the War Memorial Park. Right. Last year it was held over in Coombe Abbey. Is this in place of the Donkey Derby? No, this oh. is different. This is, used to be the Walkathon. Oh. They've always had this. Mm. Um, but they, um, they moved it back to the War Memorial Park this year. Did it stop for COVID or not? Yes, Maybe. I think did it did. That's what it was the opportunity to change it, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it yeah. stopped for a while, I think, during COVID, as did most things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to imagine now, isn't it? Yes. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we'll mention it again, but Sunday the 10th of September. Uh, so um, join in with us if you want to. Saturday, Sunday the 10th, Sunday the 10th of September, 11am start. And the only other thing to say is on that note, we have got a walking group moving uh, uh, up and running, so to speak, a walking group uh, that's now meeting on a Wednesday morning here and going up to War Memorial Park. And there's quite a big group now, um, so we're probably a bit capacity at the moment, but if anyone's keen to join in, uh, we'll probably start a waiting list. Uh, So that's on a Wednesday morning, they start from the centre at 10 o'clock. Uh-huh. How long they out for usually? About an hour, something like that. Uh, they go out for two hours altogether. Oh, they they walk up to the Good. park. Yep. Go, there's a short route and a long route, yep. depending on people's mobilities. And then they um, they stop for coffee in the park and then ah, they walk done. back to the centre. Good. Good. So thank you, everybody. Nice to speak to you. Hugh will be back next yes. week to talk Excellent. to you, I'm sure. Yes. I've got a little comment to make. During the um, news, I mentioned about the Comedy Cathedral collection mm-hmm. and stuff, and the collection day was, I said, Sunday, the 9th of September. Mm. I was wrong. It's Saturday, the 9th of That's September. That's what I was thinking. Yes. It was a Sunday so and the 9th. Maybe. I had a typo, as they say, in the oh, news. Yeah. So it's Saturday, the 9th of September. So that's it. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. And now, as ever, with her sports report, here's Sarah. Outlook Sport. Well, hello and welcome to this week's sport with Sarah. And if you can hear her in the background, my snoring pussycat called Emily. Now, I said last week that I'd say a bit more about the Cycling World Championships. Well, they've just finished and they were being held in Glasgow. They spread out across much of Scotland and they and combined events featured just under 8,000 athletes. Now, when I say sort of combined events, that was when you total the road, the track and the BMX, and the cross-country, and the boring standard cycling, and the paracycling. But regardless which way you cut the cake, Great Britain came out top. In the non-paracycling, the boring ordinary, Great Britain came first ahead of Germany and France. For interest, Great Britain had a total of 56 medals compared to 32 by Germany. 
But in the para, Great Britain came first with 44 and second was France and third were the Netherlands. So well done one and all and it certainly sets us up well for the Olympics because all gold medal winners will already automatically have qualified for the Olympics so they can start planning. And now to more usual territory, football. Well, on Wednesday, tra uh, Coventry City travelled to Division 2 side AFC Wimbledon. Now this was a match of good news and bad news. The good news was that, well, we took the lead quite soon on and we held on right from the 17th minute to the 86th minute. The bad news was that they then scored twice in the 87th and the 90th minute, meaning that for the umpteenth year running, Coventry City are no longer in the EFL Caraboa Cup. But it was a very different story on Saturday at the CBS Arena where we entertained Middlesbrough. To remember Middlesbrough, they were that side we played at the end of last season and then we played them home and away in order to go to Wembley. That bit went so well, but we won't talk about Wembley. Well, Matthew Gordon put us ahead in the first half. But, you know, when you've got like that 1-0 lead, it's kind of, ooh. But then, in the second half, we turned it on. And Middlesbrough, to be honest, I don't think knew what had hit them. Our multi-million pound signing... Um, American international, though previously playing in a Turkish club, got that. Um, Hadji Wright scored the second goal before, just near the end of the match, Matt Gordon did another tremendous shot on goal, which they say was deflected in by the opposition. But we think it was really a Matt Gordon goal. Anyway, final result, Coventry City 3, Middlesbrough 0. Next match is, I believe, to Swansea City away on Saturday at the normal kick-off time. Now, I didn't actually listen to the first half of that match. No, hell had not frozen over. But the fact since half past 11, I've been watching England women playing Colombia women in the quarterfinals of the Women's World Cup. Oh, gosh, I am a glutton for punishment. Should we just say our team do not make it an easy watch? First half, script did not go to plan with Colombia scoring first. But then quite soon afterwards, we equalised. So we went in at half-time, 
one goal each. But then, partway through the second half, up popped our centre forward, Russo, to score a lovely goal. Now, we didn't so much hang on, but we did throw all of our players really in defence. So you had to get used to hearing the names of the Colombians. Oh, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. Oh, but you knew they weren't going to score or you hoped they weren't going to score because we just got so many around the box. Right, now by the time you're listening to this, the country will either be in raptures or will be in a terminal sulk. Because the semi-final match is against Australia. And you all know how much I love the Australians at sport. Well, me and the rest of the country, actually. In fact, I couldn't help but laugh when I saw this in on the BBC website. Said by Serena Viegman, our Dutch-English women's team manager. Quote, the England-Australia rivalry at sport is far bigger than I thought, close quotes. Oh yes, Serena, it is huge. Now, the Aussies may have walloped us at netball and they may still have the ashes, though we did draw with them. But come on, guys. Football's coming home. Meanwhile, staying with football, but going to our local, more amateur teams. Now, the local women, who are now Rugby Borough, the former Coventry United women, don't start their season until next Sunday. That's the 20th. But meanwhile, back in the men. My gosh, I bet Leamington wish they hadn't kicked off their season yet. They lost five goals to two away to Colville. And I believe three goals, the last three, came quite near the end. Not a good day at the office there, Leamington. Now, Stratford also lost away to Barwell. But at least Nuneaton only lost 0-1 to St Ives. Oh dear, not a good day for local football. Now, change of sport and gender. I'm back to women playing golf this time in the British Open, which was held at Waltham Heath. Now, going from day three to day four, it really looked as if we might get a British winner with Charlie Hull because she was just ahead of the pack. But by the end, Charlie Hatt did come second, but six shots behind the winner, Lilia Vu, a Vietnamese Californian lass. 
Now, Lilia actually had had quite a hard run-up. In fact, at one stage, she was contemplating giving up golf because of such a bad shoulder injury. But she targeted three wins this year. And my gosh, the British Open was her second Open, the second of the majors. So, yes, Lilia, I think you are certainly on course. But the thing of great wonder really was the celebration at the end. She just erupted with happiness. It was a joy to see. And when she got hold of that champagne bottle, my gosh, who didn't get covered in champagne? She'd obviously kept it really all corked when she was playing the golf, particularly, of course, when you're putting on the green. But then, wow, a one. It was a joy to watch. Now, just looking ahead of things, next week, well, from the 19th to the 27th of August, we do have the World Athletics Championships. You know, the competition that I've been saying was in July. Now, the great thing is, if you're into athletics, it is on right across the BBC. BBC One's got bits, Two's got bits, Three's got bits, Radio 5 Live has, and BBC Sound. So, whether you want to watch it or listen to it, it's there for you. Now, my, and finally slot this week, I'm afraid, is another sort of, hmm, what do you think of the demise or the possible demise of the Commonwealth Games? Now, I know that the, the concept of Commonwealth and the terminology around that does belong in the past, but the Commonwealth Games call them whatever you want, really was something else. I mean, I was lucky enough to see a bit of it, not as much as I'd have liked to, of course, of a broken leg, when they were in Birmingham. But they really brought so many nations together. And it's small little nations that wouldn't normally get a chance to compete. Plus, they bring along cultural exhibitions, cultural festivals. I just think it will be such a shame if they die. But in case you wonder why they might be dying, well, the potential organisers, Victoria and Australia, for 2026... And I know it was Canada, I believe it was Ottawa for 2030, have both said they can't fund the staging of it. So come on, folks. It's not just because it's the only event where lawn bowls and squash and netball get some airtime, but it is such a nice joyous occasion it's the really happy side of sport so don't let it die please and that has been your sport so i always managed to find different and interesting sporting topics to tell you about and may 
even managed to keep to the attention of those avowed non-sportsmen and women among our listeners. And so from Sarah we moved to Dave with your postbag. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello again and welcome to your postbag. Bob Syme leads this week by talking about the cuts in local radio stations. Regarding the uh, radio station, CWR, amalgamated with the Midlands radio stations like Hereford and Birmingham, I heard Phil Upton one morning when I listened to the news, because that's really all I use CWR for, is the news in the morning or around five o'clock, and he stated that he had had a letter stating that he will be staying with the... CWR and the new amalgamated radio station, whatever it's going to be called. Uh, and it's up to other people to announce if they've had a letter or not. I've not heard anyone else say they have, except, say, it was Graham had, I heard Trisha do do it up at the two o'clock news on one afternoon saying, she said, I'll be up with WM and CWR from the first week of September. I've not heard it from anyone else. And, uh, I don't know what's ha- happened to Brodie Swain. Uh, all I hear is uh, st- people standing in for Brodie Swain. Thank you, Bob. CWR did amalgamate with Radio WM before, and John Gaunt was quite vocal about it, and so were the listeners. They eventually... The powers that be came to the conclusion that Coventry was big enough to justify its own radio station and associates itself with Warwickshire rather than Birmingham. And do you think the powers that be have been trying to get Coventry to join up with Birmingham for years? Is that the ultimate plan? One song that used to be played on the radio probably needed some audio description. The pop video was a Cinderella scene with Diana Dawes as the fairy godmother, emerging from the mist through a doorway and transforming the singer's dowdy rags and dressing him as a dandy. He then gets into a white sports car, she's magicked up, and drives to the ball and swings on a chandelier to his blonde chosen one, who doesn't look particularly sweet and innocent. This is the title of Julia's report, Prince Charming by Adam and the Ants. Prince Charming, Prince Charming, ridicule is nothing to be scared of, don't you ever... Don't you ever stop being a dandy, showing me you're handsome. Well, my friend Hazel gave me a voucher for jewels from Pandora, who has a shop as well as a box. So my lovely young sister and I went to the shop. It was either that or visit our mum, and we've already seen her. So a shopping we did go. I was going to buy some earrings, but they're all rubbish. So we went to another shop and bought a lucky charm to put on my bracelet. I have sixteen on it already, and my friend John says I must rattle, but he doesn't understand jewellery. I didn't get the earrings I wanted because they were all too cheap. I went to a third jeweller's to get my old silver earrings fixed, but the lady couldn't fix them because I was attached to them. I don't know what she meant. 
I like jewels. I like them because they're sparkly and shaped like hearts. I don't mind if they're shaped like kidneys or livers, but I prefer hearts. My friend John doesn't understand, but that's because he's a bit stupid. I wonder what happened to Adam and the ants. Lots of love, Julia. Well, thank you, Julia. So what happened to Adam and the ants? Well, in January 1980, at the suggestion of manager Malcolm McLaren, they all left the band to join Bow Wow Wow. And it seemed that they bow wowed out. Because <laughs> I haven't heard of them since. Talking about going to the ball, Tina tells how someone got into trouble from the social services for taking her out. Now, um, it all started in 2007, when I used to live in Charles Avenue, and they've got the church next to the half sovereign, not the one opposite, the one next to it, and at the back of that they used to have a day centre, this lady called Eileen Grants, she used to run the day centre, I went there for a few years, and then I went to the one on the Fraser Road to the Enterprise Club. Uh, they closed the, the one in Camley, the Charter Avenue. Uh, they closed that one in, in 2013. It came under Jardine. We had, a, we had some good times there. She used to take us out. But she got into trouble for taking us out. She took us out, we should have been on the, off the premises. But we went out, we went to this, uh, we went to this garden centre on Monday. That was when I first went to it. And she got into trouble with her, with them. And she said, right, well, you can stick your job. Well, I can't take my ladies out for, for a meal. And then we started going to pubs. We got another lady from, another carer from Cheshire, uh, name was Liz. Thank you, Tina. Sadly, I've heard some stories of two dedicated, kind people being sacked for taking a blind young man out for the day during the summer holidays. He would have normally just uh, perhaps uh, sat alone in his bedroom listening to talking books. But uh, talking of summer, just recently Edwina talked about wearing a hat to protect your head in the hot weather. This week she tells you another reason to wear a hat, to enable you to see better. The sun hat and the baseball hat. It is a good idea to use them to help your eyesight. It is quite surprising when you wear a hat that has got a brim that is causing some shade, partially sighted can see better. It does help. I have had a sun hat given to me last year by a friend who went on holiday abroad and she brought this lovely sun hat and I've been wearing it quite a lot since. I find that even though I've got my sunglasses on, plus the hat, 
it is making a bit of difference when I go out and when I walk around my garden. So you give it a try. Wear a hat with a brim and see what you think. Take care, everybody. Bye. Yes, Edwina pointed out to me that listener and friend Dorothy Davis always wore a peaked cap. Well, if you're planning to go somewhere nice on the train, Graham points out that it's going to be a bit more complicated with the closure of ticket offices at the railway stations. He wants you to complain. Yes, I do recommend everybody, really, to try and do something to show their um, opposition to the closure of ticket offices. I, I think I've probably said that before, this before. Um, I don't do many train journeys these days, but when I do, I normally book up my care and my ticket through the care office. Now, um, the care number now is an 0844 number, which is 13 pence per minute plus network charges. It's extortionate. It's scandalous. So your only other option, if you don't want to pay that, is to actually go down the station and book the ticket yourself. And that is going to be very difficult if there's no ticket office. And when you think about it, the rail ticket system is so complex that I just can't see how one machine can deposit every ticket which is available. Uh, I've recently gave, given my view through the uh, transport focus phone number which has been advertised, which I haven't got it just at the moment. And I was all prepared to deliver my speech into a recorded machine, as I do with Postbag. I was surprised to find that it was answered by a real live person. So if you don't like talking into a machine, you might like to ring transport focus uh, and give your opinion. Now, I'm sorry, I, I just can't remember what the number is at the top of my head at the moment. Regarding Salisbury Hill, Peter Gabriel, yes, I've got the album. I've got the LP. Or, <laughs> my dad had the LP. <laughs> yes. And when you think about it, uh, there aren't many names in this country which appear in song titles. There are loads in America. Loads in America, but somehow I Lost My Heart in Chicken Salisbury doesn't sound quite the same. Well, if you happen to have the, the phone number for people to complain about the closure of ticket officers, please send it into postbag. Well, uh, what songs are about place in England? Let us know. I do know one song about Coventry. Songwriter Archie Layton once came into the studio to ask if we were interested in his song. I went to his house to record him. He also gave it to the Coventry Scout Gang Show. There was the scene where the mayor of medieval Coventry was merrily singing, We have lots of dinner dates, and it all goes on your rates. <laughs> a kind of many a true word sang in jest. He did have the good citizens of Coventry's interest at heart, though, when he passed a law banning skinheads. They all finished by singing together this song by Archie Layton. I was born in Coventry, a Coventry kid am I. 
proud to be a Coventrian, no better or worse than anyone. Many a time I spread my wings, some wonderful sights to see, but wherever I roam, my heart's at home in dear old Coventry. Finally, here's our own listener, Amy, who's going to tell you about a poem that she's had published in a Coventry magazine that's distributed free in Coventry, and that includes from the Resource Centre, and that's Chatterbox. I've just had a poem published called Tick in this month's Chatterbox magazine, the August, September edition it is, I believe, and this poem's a, a humorous little ditty. It, it's, definitely, it's definitely not me. I just wrote it to, to, to make people laugh. And sometimes you have to write poetry that, you know, people who, 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 who read that magazine will appreciate and like. And here is that poem, it's called Titch. Even with a sixpence in my shoe, year upon year, still I never grew. I've been this height since I was thirteen, and grown not a fraction in between. Now I'm nearly seventy-seven, stuck at only four foot eleven. Though I'll never be any taller, I dread the thought of shrinking smaller by Amy Clinnell Coventry. Thank you, Amy. That was great. And thank you for your comments this week. And uh, please, let's hear from you next time. You know the phone number. Uh, phone the Resource Centre on 02476 717 522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper. Or uh, send in a message in any way you feel happiest, OK? Thank you very much for your contributions this week. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. And as ever, Dave there with your Postbag for this week. Now we're coming to the end of the instalments from Dover Glory's book Coventry in 50 Buildings and for this final visit to the architectural gems Margaret goes to one of the greatest buildings in the city St Margaret's Guildhall in Bailey Lane. Work began on the hall in 1340. The first half-timbered stage was built by the Merchant Guild of St Mary as a meeting place and banqueting hall. This first guild amalgamated with the guilds of St John, St Catherine and Holy Trinity and became the United Guild of the Holy Trinity. Greatly enriched, they began the second phase of building. Work began in 1394 by extending the hall to Bailey Lane and ended in 1414, leaving the hall as we see it today. The Trinity Guild traded across Europe to the Baltics and many rich merchants became members, including the famous Dick Whittington. 
Others included Henry V, Henry VI and Henry VII. There were also 2,000 female members. In 1345, Coventry received its Charter of Incorporation and the most powerful men formed the first council and chose its first mayor. Most of these men were guild members, so the guild hall also became the council house, a role that ended in the late 19th century. As for the Trinity Guild, it was dissolved in December 1547. The only guild now associated with the building are the Freemen. The hall has a stunning history. It was rebuilt from the remains of Coventry Castle and has been a meeting place for kings, queens, the rich and the poor. The castle's entrance tower, Caesar's Tower, was bombed and after being mostly rebuilt, now stands at the rear. The medieval mystery plays were rehearsed here. Shakespeare played here on numerous occasions, as did the great Georgian actress Sarah Siddons. During the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, the Great Hall was used as a courtroom. Many were condemned here, transported or imprisoned. One who mentioned this was the novelist George Eliot, a frequent visitor. In her novel, Adam Bede, the hall is the courtroom in the trial of Hetty Sorrell. Other writers to visit include Jane Austen and Charles Dickens. In 1829, Charles Perkins and John Bates were sentenced to death here for stealing a lamb. On the same day, Edwin Horsfall was sentenced to death for stealing a sheep. In January 1852, Anne Smith was tried for attempting to steal a pocket watch from Richard Bradnick. Richard had been in the Greyhound in Much Park Street, and as he left, the young lady lifted his watch. Unfortunately for Anne, Richard was the county bailiff, sheriff of Coventry, and arrested her, and she got four months. Notable visitors included Henry V, who feasted here with his queen after Agincourt, his son, Henry VI, moved the royal court to the city during the Wars of the Roses and was a regular visitor. He's commemorated all over the building. Henry VII visited and feasted here. James I dined here, as did James II. The medieval kitchen that supplied this food is the oldest in England. The hall holds many treasures, including a huge number of medieval roof bosses, which were taken down for safety after the April air raids in 1941 and restored into a new roof in 1952-3. Portraits in glass adorn the windows, including some of the best stained glass of the 20th century. The north window, dating around 1492, venerates Henry VI and his ancestors. The hall's greatest treasure is the unique Coventry Tapestry, made for this war between 1495 and 1500. The tapestry and stained glass above represent the last major surviving relic of the cult of Henry VI in England. It depaints Saint Henry and is the second most venerated image in Tudor England after the Virgin. Over 300 miracles were attributed to the dead king, but his sainthood failed because of Henry VII's tight purse. It commemorates Coventry's greatest moment when it became the centre of the royal court and home to a saint.
The hall, considered the finest in England, has been open to visitors for 250 years. Next time we'll be starting a new series and looking at the Charter House. I'm sure we all enjoyed the fun and pranks in children's comics as youngsters, and one of the great survivors is the Beano, which is 85 years young this year and still going strong, entertaining our children and grandchildren. Sheila tells us all about the Beano in this article by Mark Thorne from the Sunday Times. For generations, the Beano unleashed a riot of pea shooters, pranks and slipper-wielding parents on a weekly basis. But now, as it celebrates its 85th birthday, the country's longest-running comic has undergone a quiet transformation to make it more appealing to its idealistic young readers with the help of inclusive minds. The consultancy that recently rewrote Ronald Dahl's books to remove offensive material. New Beano characters are vetted and shaped by a vast digital focus group of children and advisors from Inclusive Minds, which seeks to embed authenticity in children's books and comics. After remaining largely unchanged for almost 70 years, the Bass Street kids have been joined by five new pupils, Harsha, Mindy, Khadija, Mahira and Stevie Starr, in an attempt to better represent the demographics of modern Britain. Fatty and spotty long-time students at the unruly school have been rebranded as Freddy and Scotty to stop youngsters with acne, freckles or weight problems being taunted by classmates. Mike Sterling, 49, creative director of the Dundee-based comic, whose inaugural edition from 1938 featured a controversial caricature of a black child, is unfazed by the prospect of being branded woke by ageing former readers. We have never seen that as a pejorative term, he said. It's awareness and being awake to things. What would be easy to do would be to sleepwalk and keep the beano the way it had always been done forever. When we make a new character, Inclusive Minds connects us with an ambassador who advises us, he said. That allows us to get the details right in terms of the clothes they are wearing and cultural celebrations their family might get involved in. Sterling has updated its most popular school saga, which continued to feature inkwells and mortarboards long after they had vanished from the real world. The Bass Street kids were completely anachronistic, Sterling said. There were ten kids, nine were boys and one was a girl. All of them were white. The make of that class was okay in 1954, but it had to change. The new intake includes Madeira Sharma, known as Mandy, a nervous girl whose anxieties are used to highlight mental health problems, and a hijab-wearing Khadija Rad, a talented artist. There is parity between male and female characters thanks to newcomers such as Ruby, a ginger-haired scientist who uses a wheelchair, and Jemima Jones, a junior ghost hunter who is black. We don't take out the characters that our readers' granddad or granny knew and loved Sterling, a lifelong Beano reader from the coastal golfing town of Carnoustie and Angus said. We keep them in, but have brought in new characters alongside them. Older content is carefully analysed before being reprinted, with strips deemed to be offensive exercised. Examples include a Lord Snooty strip from 1953, where the comic sold about a million copies a week, where the main character is gifted an African servant with an offensive name.
The comic published every Wednesday sells about 40,000 copies, but most children use its website, while revenue is raised through spin-off novels, merchandise and TV and film. In previous decades, parents and teachers were portrayed as petty, vindictive and not adverse to walloping Dennis the Menace and Minnie the Minx with a slipper or cane. Changing social attitudes mean they are portrayed as sympathetic and nurturing. I was always a bit spooked and scared about going to school, but my kids don't think that way, Sterling said. In today's Beano, libraries are promoted as being like Netflix for books, while characters who once punched program rivals and hurled stink bombs dutifully wear helmets when they cycle or skateboard. But Sterling is adamant that Freddy, formerly Fatty, will not be slimmed down. Kids are all different shapes and sizes and we think that's brilliant, he said. What we don't want is a nickname being put out there loosely. The Beano head, whose official title is Director of Mischief, is confident of his ability to move with the times. We reckon there are 27 million people alive in the UK today that have read the Beano at one point in their lives, he said. We have a trust rating that is higher than Disney and the BBC. Great innocent fun for children of all ages. Equally as famous as the Beano is Robin Hood, who may never have existed in real life, but as he approaches uh, his his uh, 900th anniversary, uh, the, he remains an historical colossus. In this article written by Ben Lowell in Country Life magazine and read by Elaine, Ben explores why a man who stole from the rich and gave the poor still resonates today. The year is 1185, possibly. A man slips noiselessly through the oaks of Nottinghamshire's Sherwood Forest, or it might be Yorkshire's Barnsdale Forest, with a bow and arrow in his hands. He may or may not be wearing Lincoln green tights and a feathered hat, and he may or may not be looking for bounty to redistribute among the poor. Behind him, stepping stealthily between the trees, is a band of accomplices that, perhaps, include a friar, a man-giant, and a fair maid. And could that noise in the distance be the tyrannical sheriff of Nottingham cursing the lot of them? The legend of Robin Hood is not founded on hard or consistent facts, at least not many of them but it's a rip-roaring yarn and still a bona fide cultural phenomenon. Folklore has a way of spinning tales from the past into gold and few characters straddle the ages as mightily as the big-hearted outlaw who romped through the greenwood, robbing from the rich and saving the downtrodden. Globally, his name is synonymous with fearlessness, resistance and justice. As folk heroes go, it's hard to think of anyone to touch his tunic hem. It explains why there are hundreds of ballads, books, films and television adaptions in his honour, and why each year seemingly brings yet another retelling of the story. Which version springs to mind when you hear the name? A neatly shaved Errol Flynn. A brooding Kevin Costner, a roguish cartoon fox, or Douglas Fairbanks, Russell Crowe, 
none of the above? Robin's near 900-year-long journey has carried him from the page to the stage to become one of the most portrayed characters in screen history. Not bad for a kindly thief from the Midlands. Two of the works that brought the tale to a wider audience are celebrating landmark dates in 2023. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney's Robin Hood animation, featuring Peter Ustinov as the scheming Prince John, and 140 years since the release of Howard Pyle's classic children's book, The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood. Yet what do we know about Robin's origins, and why does his legend still resonate so strongly? All manners of theories swirl around the first part of that question. Some believe that the concept of Robin Hood, as a powerful benign force in tune with nature and the seasons, initially evolved from the idea of pagan forest spirits, such as the Green Man. But this notion appears to be at odds with the earliest written references to Robin, which date to the late 14th century, and portray him and is not especially merry men as cruel and murderous desperados. A popular line of thinking is that troubadours and minstrels took these accounts and moulded them over time, through theatre and ballads, into good versus evil stories, centering on a noble yeoman archer. His companions, among them Little John, Will Scarlet and Friar Tuck, became a much more palatable, crowd-pleasing bunch. Troubadours were travelling up and down the country and abroad, telling the tales of Robin Hood, says the chairman of the Nottingham-based worldwide Robin Hood Society. And of course they went from castle to castle, and they added little bits to the story. But was he once a real person? There is some evidence that the name Robin Hood was used as a stock term for petty criminals in the Middle Ages and may have been put forward by historians as being the original source of inspiration for the character. However, although there were English outlaws who likely lived in a manner similar to Robin we know today, it's almost impossible to pin the legend onto a specific person. There are 25-plus academics who say that such and such a person could have been Robin Hood, but there's nothing to make their claims better than anyone else's. We can't prove, and nobody can, whether Robin lived or who he was. We don't have the benefit of Richard III in Leicester, for example, where they could track the DNA. We don't even have a body, which means you can't say anything. A grave on the Kirklees Park estate in West Yorkshire has traditionally been proffered as his final resting place. Similarly, dubious is the supposed final resting place of Robin's right-hand man, the colossal Little John, in a churchyard in Hathersage in the Peak District. The famous tree, known as the Major Oak, meanwhile, where Robin and his men are said to have slept and sheltered, would barely have been a sapling in the 1100s. However, if the truth behind Robin Hood's origins is slippery, 
the character's influence on popular culture is immutable. For writers and directors, the flexibility of Robin's story is part of the big appeal. Every interpretation adds something new, so what's added can be plausible or as implausible as you like. Robin is a people's champion, and it is this concept that has helped his legend travel so far. Among innumerable examples of how the name has taken root around the world, India has a vast volunteer-based organisation called the Robin Hood Army, which distributes food to the needy. South Africa has the Robin Hood Foundation, which does much the same. Hotels and restaurants bearing Robin's name are found across the map, and American presidents often get compared to Nottinghamshire's finest, both favourably and unfavourably. The universal appeal of the Robin Hood theme has also provided inspiration for a whole raft of heroic characters. Stan Lee, the legendary comic book writer, who co-created, amongst others, Spider-Man and Iron Man, was known to be a huge fan. When I was a child, he once said, my favourite superhero was Robin Hood. I would leave the theatre with an imaginary sword at my side, looking for a young girl I could rescue. He reportedly went to the cinema dozens of times to watch Errol Flynn in the 1938 release The Adventures of Robin Hood, Back in the UK, a giant statue of Robin has stood outside Nottingham Castle since 1952. His bowstring is taut and his arrow is notched, ready to let fly. At the time of writing, the trust that runs the castle was preparing to enter liquidation, a sad blow for a medieval building, which only recently had a multi-million pound revamp. Yet Robin himself simply keeps his eyes fixed ahead, facing the future, a cultural colossus name-checked by politicians and pantomime dames alike. I think, says Mr White, the chairman of the society, is because his story has all the ingredients of any good drama. You've got the central character, you've got the love interest of Maid Marian, You've got betrayal and camaraderie and the merry men, who are all characters in themselves. Then, of course, there's the fight against authority. You've got everything you need and a wonderful underlying message of helping people out. And the fair maid of Nottingham has to have special mention. Blithely Robin whistled as he trudged along thinking of Maid Marian and her bright eyes. For at such time a youth's thoughts are wont to turn pleasantly upon the lass that he loves best. This excerpt from the 1938 book gives no doubt as to where Robin's affections lie. Maid Marian is a key component of Robin's tale. Legend has it that the pair married at St Mary's Church in the Sherwood village of Edwinstow. There's even a statue of the two of them nearby. But, like Robin himself, her backstory is hazy. She doesn't feature in the early medieval ballads. 
and in the later stories she appears variously as a noblewoman, a damsel in distress, the ward of the sheriff, and a skilled swordswoman who can outduel any man. As a strong female character, she has since been the subject of any number of dedicated books and films, and she remains an integral part of the Robin Hood story. But, overall, is the underlying message of helping people out. So I hope you enjoyed hearing about Robin Hood and go during the day singing about him. Robin Hood, Robin Hood and his band of men riding through the glen. Robin Hood's uh, entertaining exploits, of course, are still regularly available on television. Words and their origin are a speciality of Susie Dent, the resident lexicographer in Dictionary Corner of of ITV's Countdown. And here, Margaret looks at some more of the words that Sophie explains and which we take so for granted. Piggy bank. Many of us might be resorting to the savings in our piggy banks at the moment, but have you ever wondered why we gave our saving pots a poor kind connection? The concept of storing money in a small vessel is very old. Often these vessels were pitchers or jars made of earthenware, which were known in the 15th century as pigs, P-Y-G-G-S. The original vessels had a slot for inserting coins and had to be smashed in order to retrieve their contents. In the 19th century, pig also came to be used for the breakable clay with which such household items were made. Given the use of pig for the clay vessels, potters began to create pig pots in the shape of pigs. Over time, the clay meaning of pig faded away, but the connection with the animal remained. Teist Many of us might recognise the word teist, describing someone who subscribed to teism, the belief in the existence of God. That is the first recorded sense of the word in the 17th century, but the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley later gave us an entirely new meaning based on the modern Latin tea. Tea. Shelley was an ardent lover of tea and called himself a teaist to reflect his habit. Teaist in this sense has only one mention in the Oxford English Dictionary and there is as yet no word for the caffeine-loving equivalent. Caffeist, perhaps. There is, however, a popular recent coinage for anyone who puts off all major tasks of the day until they have had sufficient amounts of caffeine. They are pro-caffeinators. Cricket. The earliest record we have of the word cricket is from an intriguing mention in the Guildford Borough Records of 1598 involving a dispute over a parcel of common land in Surrey. Here a man aged 59 swears in court that he once played cricket and other games as a schoolboy on the site. This would date the game as far back as the reign of Henry VIII, when football was also popular. The origin of the name cricket itself is elusive. 
may be a relative of the French criquet, stick, or of the English word crutch. In both cases, the inspiration would have been the predecessor of the modern bat. The cricket that is an insect is unrelated. This comes from the French criquet, meaning to crackle or click, imitating the insect's sounds. Language, of course, is forever evolving and changing. The skill and innovation of humans is often remarkable, uh, no more so than the story of Italian convicts who crafted a complete orchestra out of discarded migrant boats. This story goes from violence to violins and is written by James Immen and read by Sue. In the carpentry workshop of Italy's biggest prison, Inmates sitting at worktops are painstakingly crafting violins and violas from painted strips of wood. Bit by bit, they are turning timber salvaged from boats dumped by people traffickers on the island of Lampedusa into an entire string orchestra that will tour the world. The project is proving to be equally transformative for the prisoners. I never thought I could do something like this, Nikolai, a 40-year-old inmate from Romania, said, as he measured faded strips of wood. Make yourself busy, ask for help. With dedication and support you grow, one step at a time. Called Metamorphosi, the project is bringing Italy's famed Lutherican tradition that is centred in Cremona, where Antonio Stradivari made his legendary stringed instruments in the 17th century, to Milan's Opera Prison, an enormous detention centre with 1,400 inmates. Four prisoners serving lengthy sentences work on the violins five hours a day, three days per week. They are guided by Enrico Alorto, a leading master luthier, in a project that was launched in 2021 and has won praise from Sting, President Sergio Mattarella of Italy and even the Pope. Zurab, an inmate prosecuted for his alleged role in thefts perpetrated by a Georgian criminal gang in Italy, explains that the Metamorphosi project helps draw attention to the plight of people who cross the Mediterranean Sea. The number of boat crossings to Italy in 2023 had soared to nearly 60,000 by the end of June, compared with 26,000 during the same period the year before. This wood is taken from the boats used by immigrants to escape terrible situations, says Zurab 42. A woman who risks death with her son or daughter clearly has a valid reason for making the journey. Once completed, six violins, two violas, two cellos and a double bass, collectively dubbed the Orchestra of the Sea, will be lent to professional ensembles and played in concerts around the world. Each violin takes 300 hours to make, with the prisoners carving, bending and sanding the wood according to the measurements recorded by Stradivari himself. 
The depth and shape needs to be exactly right. If you're out by a millimetre, the instrument will not sound, Zurab says. This work requires absolute patience. Metamorphosy is run by an arts charity. The project was born after Alorto, who has led carpentry and lutery courses at the prison since 2012, invited Francesco Tuccio, a carpenter from Lampedusa, to make nativity scenes with the prisoners out of wood from boats washed upon the island. Alorto changed his mind, suggesting they make a violin instead. He says the project had to overcome initial doubts from Tuccio about whether it would work, but a prototype violin was built with four cases of wood from Lampedusa, Italy's biggest migrant hotspot. It was first played in February 2022 at the Vatican, where Pope Francis blessed the instrument. The first violin was pretty miraculous, the Lotto says. I did everything to make sure it was playable. But he admits its sound is inferior to that of a standard violin because it is made from poor quality wood that has been painted and submerged in salt water. Bowled over by the prototype, Arnoldo Mosca Mondadori, the president of the arts charity, suggested building an entire string orchestra. Italy's interior ministry agreed to support the project by supplying 40 boats confiscated on Lampedusa. The project has now been expanded to include four other prisons around Italy. Some of the inmates are making crosses and rosary beads. Inmates at Naples' Secondigliano are building guitars and donated one of them to Sting. The rock star thanked them by playing the instrument in a special concert at the prison. The scheme is also helping prisoners build brighter futures in a country where reoffending rates are almost 70%. Only a lucky few are admitted to the programme with hopeful participants recommended by prison psychologists. The project faces challenges. Italy's right-wing government, which was elected in 2022 and has since attempted to crack down on illegal boat crossings, has stopped donating boats to the project. We have enough wood to complete the orchestra, Alorto says. Whether we continue after that remains to be seen. This project promotes the integration of human beings, of not throwing away objects made from natural materials, of not throwing away people. Their ingenuity compares to that of prisoners of war intent on escape, who fashion clothing and forge documents with the most diverse and rudimentary materials and equipment. And finally, back to home ground, with Dave and Graham returning to their family roots in Sheffield. Hello there, Graham and I have come to Sheffield on the train and it's where most of my family comes from, apart from me and uh, there's a big, by the station, there's a big, slightly curved steel wall because uh, Sheffield is where they make stainless steel cutlery and here we are, down this steel wall, there is a fountain of water running down it 
So, it's quite impressive, isn't it, Graham? Yeah, it's very impressive, yeah. Yeah, great. Here we are. You can hear the, the, the water coming down the long steel wall. We are walking along the side of Hallam University and going up a hill. In fact, there are steep hills all over Sheffield. Sheffield is like Rome. It was built on seven hills. Now we've walked out of the winter gardens and across the little road here is the Crucible Theatre. As the church bells are ringing out. Right, okay, so here we are at the Crucible ground. They host the Will's Snooker Tournament uh, every year. Yeah. It was a song by Chaz and Dave, a snooker loopy, wasn't it? Yeah, it featured uh, various snooker players in the video. Snooker loopy, that's the way we are snooker loopy. <laughs> Great, thank you, Graham. Hey, right, we've come to a Cuban bar, so what are we doing here, Graham? Come see uh, G and James with his band, yeah. So how do you feel about entertaining in your hometown, Sheffield? Well, it's quite. It's just typical for me. I've done it many times. Uh, today we're in Leopold Square, but because of the rain, we're in one of the bars there in Cabana. It's always a good place to play. Yeah, it's a great bar, one of the best in Sheffield. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been uh, kind of professionally entertaining for a long time? Yeah, I've been playing for many years now. Yeah. Yeah. So started playing drums when I was 15 in bands, yeah. and then I started singing when I was 27 and um, playing guitar in bands and yeah. in different guises. Yeah. Now, you've uh, played the drums for Mickey Rooney. Uh, what was he like? Uh, he was great. Yeah, I did a couple of UK tours with him. Uh, it was great. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was uh, the, le the later end of his life. I think it was about 87. Yeah. Uh, but he was, uh, he was really good with his musicians. He was really you know, friendly and everything. And, uh, so what kind of songs was he singing? He was singing uh, pretty much the American songbook. Yeah. songs uh, with his wife was on it with him as well I know he's had many wives but it was his, his last wife <laughs> he's had about eight wives hasn't yeah. He? Yeah. yeah but it was great he made jokes about that as well well we've just been to the gig with the Julian Jones and it was fantastic and I was jiving on the dance floor Lovely. Now we're walking through Sheffield City Centre. So, what can we see, Graham? That's a green uh, um, police box. It says South Yorkshire Police on it. Yeah, a green one, yes. There's a Walk of Fame as well in, in front of the Gear Castle House. The Walk of Fame, we'll have a look at that. Yes. But tell you what, Doctor Who was filmed here. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, for Jodie Whittaker's Doctor, some of Doctor Who was filmed in Sheffield. And where did she come from? Uh, Huddersfield, I think. Huddersfield, right. Now, let's have a look at the Walk of Fame. 
Okay, so we've got some stars on the pavement in front of the council house. Sheffield Legends. Uh, Joe Cocker. Singer. Singer, uh, yes. Michael Palin, who was in Monty Python's Fine Circus. Yes, and he did these wonderful... Alan Sherman. Mm. He went on the International uh, uh, Space Station, is that right? He did, yes, he, he did. did. Uh, she went on, on the... I think she went on the Mir. Yeah, she was the Mir, that's right, yeah. That's right, yeah, she was uh, a, an astronaut from Sheffield. Helen Sherman was. Seb Cove, or Lord Cove. Seb Cove, yes. He, he was the Olympic winner who helped bring 2012 Olympics to London. Oh, yes, Jessica Ennis, Olympic champion, heptathlete. There's one for Tony Poles as well, they wanted to the, um, the memorial in the park, yeah. Oh, that's right, Tony Foles. I met him, yes. The Mi Amigos Memorial. Okay. Well, that's in Ancliffe Park, which we're going to tomorrow. And Dave will remain in Sheffield next week and talk to people with some interesting reminiscences. And that's uh, the end of this week's Outlook. So from the team and me, Nigel Hewin, it's good be- goodbye until next week.